First Peter 3, verse 8 to 17. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you are to suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You can hear me. That's wonderful. I am not, as you might have guessed, Pastor Dong. But it is a distinct pleasure and a privilege for me to be with you this morning. Um, I have a bit of a geographical identity crisis this morning. Uh, This is not home. Home is currently Shawnee, Oklahoma, where I teach philosophy and apologetics to undergraduate students at Oklahoma Baptist University. But we haven't been home for just about a month now. We've been on the road, and uh, I forgot to bring my razor, and so I'm a little overgrown. We've been visiting friends and family in Western Canada. Home is originally Edmonton, Alberta. That's where I was born and raised, and had the privilege of serving for seven years as English pastor at Edmonton Chinese Baptist Church, so your sister church in Edmonton, Alberta. I also had the joy there of officiating a wedding six years ago, a young couple that are now part of this church body. Aaron and Yolanda, who we've been staying with, and we've been thankful for their hospitality. And uh, Pastor Dong and I go way, way, way back to, uh, we met yesterday and had a wonderful time yesterday here. (laughs) Um, But he is also an old missionary friend and colleague of one of my colleagues at OVU, uh, Bruce Carlton, who served for, oh goodness, 25 years in Southeast Asia and is now teaching missions at OVU as well. Uh, So a unique set of circumstances and coincidences give rise to me being with you this morning and having been with you yesterday as well. And it's a joy to be able to share God's Word with you. It's also been a joy to worship with you this morning. Just to thank you to the worship team just for your your sincerity, your desire to worship God openly, vibrantly. Um, It's it's a joy. And yeah, I wanted to be up there playing guitar with you all. As we turn to consider God's word, let us pray together and just ask that he will illuminate our hearts, open our hearts and our minds to hear what he would say. Father God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we're reminded of your grace, of your majesty, of your goodness. Lord, reminded that it is in Christ alone that we find our salvation, that we find our hope, that we find our joy, that we find our peace. And we are thankful, Lord, for the gift 
of Your Son that You have given. Lord, we're also thankful for the privilege we have of gathering together as Your people. Though we be from, from different cities, though we be from different nations, Lord, we can gather together as brothers and sisters because of You. We are all Your sons and daughters and we thank You for that. And so, Lord, now as we turn to Your Word, we just pray that Your Holy Spirit will enlighten our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that we would have receptive hearts and minds to hear what You would speak to us. Lord, I pray that um, every person here would hear You speaking and not me. That what You desire to minister to each heart and mind would be what each person hears. We pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, the topic of my message this morning is apologetics. Now, how many of you were here yesterday? And so you, you, yeah, okay, so you're probably sick and tired of hearing me talk already. Um, but so apologetics will not be a new word or a new concept for you. But for many of you, apologetics might be an unfamiliar word, something that, that isn't a part of your everyday vocabulary. So what is apologetics then, and how does it relate to the Christian faith, and why is it important for us? That's kind of where I want to sit this morning. Now, the technical part first, this will be very brief, I promise. Apologetics is a term that's derived from the Greek word apologia, which is just A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. And the Greek term kind of connotes like a courtroom scene. So the picture is like you're on the witness stand or you're in the defendant's seat and you're being asked questions and you need to respond. So one of the connotations it has is that you are the defendant and you've been accused of something and you need to defend yourself. So they're asking you questions. You need to give your defense saying, I am not guilty of what you are charging me of and here is why. So apologetics, apologia, has this connotation of giving reasons, giving defense against what is being launched against you. So an apology can be seen as giving reasons for what one believes. One of the first uses of the word apologia we have comes with the Greek philosopher Socrates. Now Socrates, as some of you will know, was put on trial for corrupting the youth of Athens because Socrates would stand on street corners and accost bystanders and say, what do you think about this? And then he would just tear down what they thought they knew and so they didn't. So he was arrested, he was put on trial, he was convicted, but in the courtroom he had to give his defense and it was called his apologia. And so we have a lengthy dialogue where Socrates is interacting with the lawyer who's prosecuting him and Socrates is giving his defense of himself and his manner of living and his manner of interacting with other people. He's giving the reasons for what he believes and what he practices. So an apologist, broadly speaking, is simply a defender or an advocate for a particular position. So it's not something unique to Christianity. You can be an apologist for Christianity, but you can also be an apologist for Islam, for Hinduism, for the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, for hockey, in Oklahoma, you need to be an apologist for hockey because they don't know what it is. Christian apologetics, then, as I define it, is simply the explanation and defense of the Christian faith. More fully, it can be defined as, and this is from a textbook, the rational defense of the Christian worldview as objectively true, rationally compelling, and existentially engaging. So that kind of gives us a picture of what apologetics is. It's about giving a defense for the Christian faith that we hold to people who either don't understand it or don't like it or don't want us to hold it. My purpose, however, is not simply to help you understand what apologetics is. My desire is to present you with a mandate for apologetics. 
an apologetic for apologetics, if you will. A case for why apologetics is very necessary in our society and in our church today. So my hope is to spur you to a deeper apologetic engagement to ministry for two purposes. First, for yourself. Engaging in apologetics can help you to understand the reasons for what you believe. Understanding the rational foundation for your faith in Jesus Christ. Why you believe what you believe and that what you believe is actually true. It's not just something that you happen to prefer or an opinion that you happen to hold, but something that you too can be convinced is in fact true. It's really real. So apologetics has a personal benefit for the one who engages in it. But it also has a benefit for those around you. Equipping yourself apologetically will enable you to respond to the questions that your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers and your family members ask about your Christian faith or the objections that they put up against your Christian faith. Now, my role at OBU, I teach a full range of philosophy classes at the undergraduate level. But over the past three years, we've also put together an apologetics curriculum that will start this fall. And in the context of academic ministry at OBU, and also in the context of ministry at ECBC, I've frequently, frequently been confronted with a very perplexing question. And the question is this. Why do we need apologetics? And oftentimes it's supplemented by asking, is evangelism enough? Don't we just have to tell people the gospel and that's it? Why do we need apologetics? Why do we need to reason about our faith? Why do we need to try to persuade people that Christianity is true? Isn't that the work of the Holy Spirit? Why waste time on rational arguments and evidences for the Christian faith. So in the remainder of our time this morning, I want to provide you with a two-pronged apologetic for apologetics to demonstrate two sides of an argument for why we must be engaged in apologetics. First, I want to talk about the biblical mandate and then I want to talk about the ministry mandate. So first, the biblical mandate. You might want to have your Bibles handy because we're going to be bouncing all over the place. And we're going to start with what's undeniably the key scriptural, biblical mandate for apologetics. And it's the text that was read earlier in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. And we're going to focus our attention in on verse 15 of this passage. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And Peter says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now notice that Peter is commanding his listeners to be prepared. Now, how often are they to be prepared? How often does Peter say that we are to be prepared? Sorry? Always. Okay? And what are we to be prepared for? Sorry? To give an answer. Right? To give an answer to what? To whom, sorry? To everyone, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Why do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Why do you believe Christianity is true? How come you're so foolish to believe that God does miracles in a scientific age? 
Why do you believe the Bible is God's Word? Isn't it just a bunch of random books written by different people over a thousand years? How is that God's Word? Doesn't the Bible have all kinds of mistakes in it? Contradictions? Have any of you ever heard any of these questions? Friends, co-workers, neighbors? Yeah. And so what does Peter say? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. This is not the great apologetic suggestion where God gives us the option if we feel so inclined or if we think that we're gifted for it to try to answer people's questions. Instead, God delivers the apologetic mandate commanding all believers. Always be prepared. This is an imperative. It's like the parent telling the child, go clean your room. That's not the parental suggestion. That's the parental commandment. Do it. It's an imperative form, right? This is what Peter is doing here. Always be prepared. It's not an apologetic suggestion. It's an apologetic mandate. In the same way that the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Great Suggestions. If you feel like it, don't worship other gods. If you feel like it, don't murder. No, it's Ten Commandments that we are given. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is not the Great Suggestion. If you feel like it, go and tell people about Jesus. No, it's go, make disciples of all nations. Here the apologetic mandate is a commandment. Always be ready. And if the Bible tells us to do it, as Christians that ought to be enough to spur us to be involved in apologetics, in the research and the ministry. But, just because I always need more encouragement, let's look at a few other passages as well. So, Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Now, in the context here, a teacher of the law has asked Jesus, you know, of all the laws and commandments, what is the most important? And this is a fairly familiar passage, and Jesus' response is pretty well known. And Jesus responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus says that is the first and greatest commandment. Now note again how we are to love God. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. J.P. Moreland has written a wonderful little book called Loving God with All Your Mind. And he notes that the Christian church in the 20th century has been pretty good at loving God with heart and soul and with strength, but hasn't been terribly good at loving God with all of its mind. Intellectual discipleship, teaching followers of Christ how to think about their faith, how to provide reasons for their faith. This has not been a strength of the church in the last hundred years. Rather, the tendency is towards embracing a faith that is absent of evidence or reasons. Or even a faith that goes against evidence and reasons. But just embracing faith on its own as enough. But that is not the scriptural imperative. Jesus tells us to love God with all of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. very first time I went to church, when I was 17, went to Sunday school before worship, and the person who invited me to church promised me that they wouldn't abandon me. I wouldn't be left on my own. And then, lo and behold, this is the first time their Sunday school class was broken into guys and girls. And so I was abandoned. I was left on my own. But the Sunday school curriculum they were working through was called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. It's a wonderful little apologetics curriculum that was reminding you, you don't turn your brains off when you come to church. We want to love God with our minds. God has given us the gift of intellect, the gift of rationality, the gift of being able to think critically. And we are to use that gift 
to worship Him, to understand Him, to understand the world that He has made, and to help bring others to know Him as well. Apologetics is an endeavor to say, yes, we can use our minds to develop our faith, to answer the questions people have, to provide reasons for the hope and the faith that we have. Numerous other passages talk about the importance of apologetic ministry, but many passages also give us examples of apologetics in action. We're going to look at just a couple of examples from the book of Acts. So you can have your finger in the book of Acts, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. And this is one of my favorite sermons, partly because of just how it starts. Remember Acts chapter 2? This is the day of Pentecost, and the church is gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then they start speaking in tongues, and there's Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and they say, ah, goodness sakes, they've all had too much to drink. Right? We've got a bunch of drunk Jews on this morning of the festival. And Peter stands up and he starts his sermon. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting if we always had to start our sermons with this? Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. We're not drunk. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had to start all our sermons that way? Okay, it's probably a good thing we don't. Anyways, Peter goes on. I'm not going to read the whole sermon. I'm going to look at a couple of verses. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. I'm sorry, am I moving around? Is it better if I just stand still? It's better if I just stand still. I'm sorry. I'm a wanderer. I'll just stand still. That'll make your life easier, right? Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by what? By miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What Peter is telling his audience is that, look, Jesus did all sorts of astounding stuff. Miracles, signs, and wonders. I know it, and you know it. And he's saying, this is a reason for me to accept Jesus as the Messiah that God promised, and it's also a reason for you to accept that Jesus is the Messiah that God promised. Further on, in verse 24, Peter emphasizes the resurrection. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He goes through reasoning from the Scriptures on how Scripture pointed to the Messiah who was going to conquer death, who would not be held by death, but would be raised from the dead. And then we come to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. God raised Jesus from the dead, and I have seen Him. Again, Peter is saying, why do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Because I saw the guy dead, And then I saw the guy alive, and he talked to me. And he walked with me, and he told me I am his own, as the old hymn goes on to say. Verse 34, David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Why does Peter believe? Peter tells the Jews why he believes and why they too ought to believe. He reasons from what they know to be true and what he knows to be true in order to point them towards the Messiah. We'll just look at one other passage. So flip over to Acts chapter 17 and we'll look at the Apostle Paul. So we move from Peter into Paul. In Acts chapter 17, has Paul's encounter in three different cities, Thessalonica and then Berea and then Athens. You know, when folks say that, well, isn't it just enough to preach Christ, to say Jesus is Lord, He's raised from the dead, isn't that all that we have to do? 
Well, the example of Paul shows us that no, that's not all that we are called to do. Again, we have the apologetic mandate, but we also have Paul's example. Look at verse 2. We'll start there. As his custom was, this is again at Thessalonica, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't just preach to them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What did he do? He explained, he was explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. You know, what Paul's doing here is having an argument. Not an argument in the sense of let's fight, but an argument in the sense of let me show you why this is true. Let me reason with you and explain and defend my Christian faith to you who don't yet believe in Christ. Paul is reasoning, he's explaining, and he's proving. This is a good philosophical argument that Paul is having here in Acts chapter 17. Move further downwards and start in verse 16 when Paul comes to the city of Athens. Now Athens, there's no synagogue, so Paul's not in the Jewish synagogue here. Rather, he's kind of hanging around the Acropolis, and he ends up having a discussion with a bunch of philosophers. This is what Athens is famous for in those days. This is where Socrates had been executed and uh, all sorts of philosophers hang around there and they just kind of discuss the latest intellectual fads of the day. And they hear Paul talking about the resurrection and they're intrigued. And so they kind of throw him up there on the stage and say, all right, buddy, let us have it. And Paul reasons with them. Now, when Paul reasons with the Greeks, he doesn't just preach Christ. You'll notice that Paul doesn't cite any Old Testament scripture when he talks with the Greeks. Why? Because they don't know the Old Testament. They have no background there. It's not a common ground with them. Instead, Paul actually starts with a pagan temple. Verse 23, I walked around, sorry, first in verse 22, he says, I see that you're very religious. Again, he's trying to find common ground. You guys are very religious. I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. So he finds something that he can identify with with them. This altar to an unknown God. Ah, you recognize that there's a God that you don't know. Let me tell you about him. And instead of quoting Old Testament scripture, instead of quoting Moses or David, if we go down to verse 28, Paul actually quotes two poets. A Greek poet and a poet from Crete. For in him we live and move and have our being. And we are his offspring. He doesn't cite Old Testament scripture. He cites their own poets because that's something they can identify with. He's finding common ground with them. And he continues to reason with them. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead, that Jesus is the Christ. And the resurrection again throws everything into a tizzy. For the Greeks, resurrection was just a silly notion. Why would you want a body back after you're dead? You've finally gotten rid of it. For the Greeks, that was the goal of life, was to be freed from the body, to have your soul freed. But what is the outcome? Verse 34, a few men believed, or sorry, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. So there is success in the apologetic encounter that Paul has here in Acts chapter 17. One more passage. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now note again the apologetic emphasis. Why does John believe as he does? Because he has heard with his ears, seen with his eyes, and touched with his hands the very word of life. At the conclusion of the letter in chapter 5, verse 13, he notes, I write these things to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. That you might have this certainty. That you might be convinced of it. You already believe. I want to help you know with certainty the truth of what you believe. Now, we can multiply examples. I'll mention a few. If you like taking notes, you can write them down. Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26. Acts 13, starting in verse 16. Philippians 1, verses 6 through 8. Galatians 1, chapter, 6, or chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. All sorts of examples in the New Testament of Paul engaging in apologetic ministry, of Peter engaging in apologetic ministry, and of apologetics being commanded and practiced. If you move to the Old Testament, we also have fun passages and even entire books to look at as well. I kind of look at the book of Exodus as being a long apologetics treatise. First, in chapters 3 and 4, God provides his apologetic to Moses, giving Moses reason to believe that he is the Lord. Moses keeps asking him questions and God keeps answering them. There's this back and forth. God, who shall I tell him you are? How shall I tell them you shall bring me out? And he, remember, he throws the staff down, he puts his hand in, it becomes leprous. God is giving Moses proof that God is God. In chapter 7 through 12, God gives his apologetic to pagan Egypt. You don't believe that I am the Lord? Let me show you. Let me give you a demonstration of who I am. Chapters 13 to 17, he gives his apologetic to Israel, giving them reasons to believe he is who he is. The book of Job can be seen as giving reasons to persevere in the midst of suffering, to believe in God's goodness and sovereignty, even when we don't understand what's going on. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God encourages the nation of Israel to come and reason together that they might be brought to repentance and be forgiven. Throughout Scripture, God encourages His people to think, to reason their faith, to reason for their faith, and to give others reasons that they also ought to believe. So we have on the one hand, scriptural reasons to engage in apologetic ministry. Put simply, God commands it, the Bible demonstrates it, and we ought to be doing it. But we also have a second powerful reason to engage in apologetics, what I call the ministry mandate. And I want to get it aside by sharing the stories of three different people. I had five, I cut it down to three, because I always go too long. Now, all of these portraits are real people who I know, who I love. I've changed their names, I've changed a few details, just in case some of you happen to know them. But each of them is a real person. Gary, my friend Gary, grew up in a strong Christian family. His parents have been members of their Baptist church since they were married, and he accepted Christ as Savior and Lord when he was nine years old. He was active in Sunday school, active in youth group throughout middle school, throughout high school. But when he was finishing high school and entering college, he began to have doubts about the truth of Christianity. He noticed that some things in the Gospels just didn't add up as he looked at them. Matthew and Luke had different genealogies for Jesus. Who was it that asked about that yesterday? The genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Are you here? Okay. So someone was, this is something that Gary had noticed. The details. Who visited Jesus' tomb? How many women were there? What were their names? Were there angels or men at the tomb? 
How many of them? He also began to question the character of God presented in parts of the Old Testament. Why did God hate Esau? How could a loving God order the annihilation of entire people groups in the Promised Land? How can God be three and one? Now again, have any of you ever had these questions? I've had all of these questions. My friend Scott grew up in a nominal Christian family. And until their divorce, his parents attended a local Lutheran church kind of off and on, you know, the go Christmas and Easter and a couple other times. After their divorce, Scott attended a Unitarian church with his mother, who had become a convinced Unitarian Universalist. But when he was 20, he began attending a local church with a friend and soon became a follower of Christ and was baptized. But Scott wanted to share Christ with his non-Christian friends and family, but he struggled with where to begin. How could he make any impact upon convinced universalists who think everything is true? Would they even listen to him? How could he show them that their belief system was wrong and needed to be adjusted to match God's truth? My friend Jill became a Christian in junior high after her single mother started going to church and getting involved in fellowships and Sunday school classes. She was baptized during high school and emerged as a vibrant young believer. A very popular and outgoing young woman, she had numerous friends who were involved in other religions. And many of her friends launched specific objections against Christianity and challenged Jill to see the truth of their beliefs. Now, Jill wanted to see her friends come to know Christ, but she felt pressured and attacked. She didn't know how to respond to the objections that her friends gave. She didn't know how to to respond to the positive reasons they gave for their religious beliefs. How could she show her friends that Christianity was the only way to salvation? What were the differences between Christianity and other religions? How could she lovingly but truthfully point out the problems, falsehoods, inconsistencies in her friends' beliefs? Now, each of these three friends have something in common. They had a desperate need for apologetic research and ministry. An active apologetic ministry, either in their personal lives and ministries or in the ministries of their church or parachurch organization, would be an immense blessing to them in their setting. The reality is, folks, that people have questions and doubts. That we have questions and doubts. And we need to take those questions and doubts seriously. To apply the apologetic mandate to them by seeking to provide reasonable answers and responses. You'll notice in the book of Job, Job has all sorts of questions for God. Job has all sorts of complaints for God. And one of the things I notice is that when God shows up and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, God doesn't really answer a lot of Job's questions, but he does acknowledge them. And at the very end of the book, he says, My servant Job has spoken of me rightly. God has harsh words for Job's friends, but he has high words for Job. What I see that as is that is God's commendation of the questions that Job is asking, the doubts that he's expressing. God's not surprised by our questions. If God is God, then God knows all things, including what you are thinking. And so if you have questions, if you have doubts, that's not going to surprise God. What's going to grieve God is if we try to bury those questions, pretend they don't matter, sweep them under the rug. I once read a survey by Carol Anway, and actually it wasn't a survey, it was an extensive study. 
She studied American women who had converted to Islam. And she started this project because her own daughter was one of them. And so she did this extensive study. And she ended up compiling the results and doing in-depth with 37 of these women who converted to Islam. And here, I just want to read for you a quote from her study. She says, Three of the women prior to converting to Islam were hoping to convert their Muslim husband to Christianity by agreeing to study Islam if the husband would consider Christianity. One woman started asking questions of ministers and theologians to help her prove the superiority of Christianity to her husband. She said, I wanted it so badly, I cried to several of them to help me. And most of them said, I'm sorry, I don't know. Or, I'll I'll write to you, but I never heard from them. Nine of the women expressed problems with the belief in Jesus as God, or the Son of God, or the concept of the Trinity. Five others said they had major questions about Christianity that no one would answer. Surveys and studies continue to show that an alarmingly large number of kids who grow up in the Christian church walk away when they get to college. In the United States, the latest Pew Forum survey that I read mentioned that just over 70%, 7-0, over two-thirds of Christian teenagers drop out of church before the age of 25. Does that shock you? That shocks me. Why is this happening? There are two most commonly cited reasons. Moral rebellion, usually involving sexual sin. And secondly, unresolved questions and doubts. Honest, genuine questions need honest, genuine responses. And often these youth are not getting responses to the questions that they ask. Now at Edmonton, a part of my, part of my job, I guess, I don't know, it's part of what I did anyways, I served as a part-time university chaplain in Edmonton. I really wasn't much of a chaplain. All I did was kind of sit and people would come and talk to me. I don't know if that's what chaplains are supposed to do, but that's what I did. But I would have kids come, and they, they weren't just kids from my church. They were just random kids from all over campus, and they would come, and they would sit. And oftentimes they would come, and they would share with me questions or doubts that they had about their Christian faith. And I think I kind of got a reputation, and so they told their friends, and then their friends came and did the same. But they had tried expressing these questions and doubts, usually with their parents or their pastors first. And surprisingly often, sadly, they were met with one of two responses. Either... Why do you have to ask these kinds of questions? Christians shouldn't be asking those kinds of questions. Or they were told, you don't need to have answers to questions like that. You just need to have faith. Don't ask. Just believe. Folks, that breaks my heart. And it should not be. I was speaking yesterday, was it after the third session or after the fourth session yesterday? I don't remember. With a young man from your congregation. He had a friend who had an experience like that. He'd become a Christian, he'd been attending a church, and he had all kinds of questions. He was um, doing, I think he was doing science at university, if I remember rightly, and asking all sorts of questions about the relationship between science and Christianity. Does science disprove God and so on? It says that the folks of that church just couldn't answer the questions he had, and they started getting really frustrated that he would ask these questions. And so they finally told him, go away. You're not welcome here if you're going to ask questions like that. That breaks my heart. When people have questions, when they have genuine doubts, the correct response is not to say, sit down and shut up. The correct response is to listen, 
to the questions that they're asking, the doubts that they're expressing. We're not called to have every answer to every question that somebody asks. But we are called to listen to them as genuine, honest questions. And if it's somebody who truly needs to hear an answer to it, then guess what? It's incumbent upon us to find an answer to it. To roll up our sleeves, to do some research, to get our hands dirty, and to figure it out. If somebody asks, you know, I've got a friend, I've got a friend that's a Muslim, what do Muslims really believe? You know what you do? Research. You start learning about Islam. What do Muslims believe? How is Islam different than Christianity? So that you're able to respond to your friends, to the person in your church. When our children or our friends or our parishioners are asking honest, searching, deep questions about the truthfulness of Christianity, we can't just say, don't ask, just believe. It is not enough to minimize or deny the validity of the questions. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. Now, our son Matteo is constantly asking questions. He's been doing it since he was two years old. It's kind of irritating sometimes. Have you ever been asked by a three-year-old, where does God live? That's a tough one. That's a tough one to answer to a 13-year-old or a 23-year-old. Where does God live? Okay, so who can I pick on just randomly? I'll just pick on Stanley randomly, okay? Because, yeah. Stanley, if somebody asks you, where does God live? Let's say it's a five-year-old that asks you, where does God live? You've got 20 seconds. Everywhere. Everywhere. There we go. That's a good answer. I wish I'd have thought of that when Matteo was five. Yeah. I tried to explain that God is a spiritual being, so God doesn't have a physical home. Like, you know, we have a house that we live in. God's not like that. That's a way better answer than what I gave my son when he was like, God lives everywhere because God is omnipresent. Very good. But one thing Matteo has learned from a very young age is that if he asks a question, we will do our best to hear it out and to answer it. We won't always have the answers, none of us do, but we will honestly respond as best we can. And our kids need to know that, that they can come to their mom, their dad, that they can come to their pastors, they can come to their deacons, their Sunday school teachers, and they can ask whatever question it is that's on their mind. Again, if the question is on their mind, it's already there. If we tell them, oh, just don't ask questions like that, you know what, the question's not going to go away. The question's still going to be there. They're just going to come to the conclusion, ah, they don't have an answer to this question. There must be something wrong with my faith. So the question is already there. It's not going to surprise God to have them ask the question. It's not going to grieve God to have the question out in the open. We always have to encourage the questions of faith, seeking, and understanding. Kids will learn from a very young age whether their parents or pastors are open to them asking questions and raising doubts that they have. If that freedom, that curiosity, and seeking is not there, they will start keeping their doubts and their questions to themselves. And then all of a sudden, one day, they will all erupt at once and they'll walk away. If the kid has the feeling that, okay, I can't ask these questions, they're still going to be asking the questions, they're just not going to be asking them of their parents or their pastors. And all of a sudden, the kid will turn 17 and the parents are like, all of a sudden, Johnny doesn't believe in Jesus Christ anymore and he's left the church. Why? Well, oftentimes, it's because Johnny wanted to ask questions all the way along and you quashed them. We can't be doing that, folks. The questions need to be considered. We might not even see the warning signs. It might take us totally by surprise. But an atmosphere that stunts or ridicules questions or doubts will just drive people farther away. 
It's sometimes said that the church in the United States, and to a lesser degree it's true in Canada as well, has a very wide and broad front door that's very well used. Many people come in, but the church also has a very large back door that people are slipping out of all the time. So my friends, I want to insist this morning that apologetic ministry is not an optional endeavor. It is something that we are all called to. The Bible commands us to be engaged in it. The Bible gives us all sorts of examples of how to do it and of the apostles and others doing it. But contemporary culture and the contemporary church also demands that we be involved in apologetics. That we be ready to give answers to those who are struggling with their own faith or struggling to come to faith or are just asking us the reasons for what we believe. God forbid that we should fail in this mandate and task. Now, after hearing this type of appeal for an apologetic ministry, some people will sometimes ask, well, what, what, what do I do? Where do I start? And so I want to briefly give you a couple of potential starting points. So again, if you're a note taker, you feel free to write these down. I want to give you four books that are helpful. They're just introductory level introductions to apologetics. One is by an author named Timothy Keller. So Timothy, and the last name is Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. And Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemed Presbyterian Church in New York City, has a very large church that ministers to educated intellectuals in New York City, sophisticated skeptics, basically, are the people who come to his church. And uh, Keller dialogues, reasons with them, and all sorts of them come to Christ. And the book is called The Reason for God. So Timothy Keller, The Reason for God. Secondly, I want to recommend C.S. Lewis. Just about anything by C.S. Lewis. Just, he's my favorite author. Um, but particularly a little book that he's written called Mere Christianity. So Mere, M-E-R-E, Christianity. There's also, if uh, the question of suffering and evil is one that you wrestle with, Lewis also has a book called The Problem of Pain that can be helpful. A third book, this is a little more difficult read, but it's one of my favorites. It's by William Lane Craig. So W.L. Craig, last name C-R-A-I-G. And the book is called Reasonable Faith. And the third edition is the one that you want. It's got a white cover. It's the third edition. And the last one is a set of books by Lee Strobel. Last name is S-T-R-O-B-E-L. Um, he's got The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for the Real Jesus, The Case for the Resurrection. He's got uh, a series on them. The first two are the best. The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. And these, again, are good introductions. If you, if you don't know where to start, you want to be equipped, but you don't know how to get started, this is good places to start. And then I just want to give you a couple of websites that are very helpful as well. First is uh, rzim.com. This is Rabbi Zechariah's International Ministries. So rzim.com. Very helpful site. The second one is reasonablefaith.org. All one word, reasonablefaith.org. That's William Lane Craig's website. It's, it's incredibly deep and helpful. And the third is actually the most helpful one, I think. And it is Apologetic 315. So, apologetics, all one word, A-P-O-L-O-G-E-T-I-C-S, 315.com. And the 315 is for 1 Peter 3.15. That's where he gets it from. And uh, that site is run by Brian Outen. It's out of Britain. It's the best one-stop shop for apologetics because he's got all sorts of links to other places, to other websites. It's fantastic. That site will take you literally anywhere. Um, so, if you want more information about those, feel free to talk to me afterwards. But I hope those are sufficient to get you started. If you want to get started in being equipped apologetically, I hope that that gets you started. 
You can always, um, if you desire to, email me or email Pastor Dong for further suggestions on general areas of apologetics or specific topics of interest. The main thing, though, folks, is again to just realize and understand we live in the midst of a world that is what we call a post-Christian world. We don't live in a Christian culture anymore. Canada at one point in time had a Christian culture. Christianity was the dominant religion, the dominant intellectual force, the dominant cultural force. This is not true anymore. There are tons of people, there's probably over a million people in Vancouver that have never heard the gospel. And for whom just hearing the gospel would be like, huh? And it just would not make sense to them. Hearing the name of Jesus will not be enough for these folks. They need to hear why Christianity is winsome and persuasive and true. And it's our task to give that to them. Apologetics is also an important part of evangelism. Let's pray together, then the worship team is going to come back up. Father God, we do thank you again, Lord, for the gift of your Son, for the gift of your Word. We're thankful, Lord, that you call us to be your children. We're thankful, Lord, that you invite us to be involved with you in apologetics and ministry and evangelism and being a part of bringing people to know you. We just pray, Lord, that you will continue your good work here, that you will encourage and equip hearts and minds to serve you, to follow you, to worship you, and to lead others to you. We love you, we worship you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.